I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder, the show about hope, inspiration, and possibility. And it's all wrapped up in the examples of ordinary people living extraordinary lives. And on today's show, the publisher of Mother Earth News, who believes we can create a world of beauty and abundance. Also, she won a gold medal in one of the most talked about races in Olympic history. We'll check in with swimmer Wendy Bolio. Plus, nutrition expert Dr. Susan Mitchell will dispense her unique common-sense advice on how to eat to feel better and live longer. And the 87-year-old college graduate and the greatest crossword puzzle creator of all time. Well, how often do you meet a highly educated writer who's also a goat farmer and a media executive all rolled into one. Well, Brian Welch is that guy. He's got a master's degree from Harvard, and he's also the publisher of Mother Earth News. Welch is well known for his optimism and commitment to empowering others to live their own versions of the good life. His new book, Beautiful and Abundant, offers a vision of the world that we can all embrace, a world that is aesthetically beautiful, economically abundant, and ethically fair. How good does that sound? Let's welcome Brian Welch. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm just fine, thank you, and thank you, thanks for a great introduction. Well, well, you know, first of all, thank you for being you, because there is so much negativism out there, so much doomsday reporting that an optimistic voice, especially one as compelling as yours, stands out like a sweet, juicy peach. I mean, you actually <laughs> believe that having a positive vision for our future is critical to getting there, don't you? Absolutely. I think that humans are motivated uh, by optimism, and I think that we are far more inventive and do much better work in an optimistic frame of mind when we're shooting for something truly beautiful, truly inspiring. And so it seems like part of our mission in, in, in my business and my mission in my life to try to share that spirit of optimism and, in, and innovation with, when, with people when I get the opportunity. And, Brian, I guess I'll throw the other side at you because I'm sure you hear it all the time. Do you watch the news? It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. You have to terrify people before we make a change. Well, you know, I've been covering uh, environmental issues as a journalist for uh, several decades and I've not seen people uh, motivated by that by that sort of gloom and doom scenario. As you know, some certainly a lot of people talking about these issues think that's how to motivate people. But if you look at our great achievements, you know, you look at the uh, we went from um, the invention of the chain-driven bicycle to the first human-powered flight in about 15 years, uh, around the turn of the 20th century. And then less than 70 years after that first flight over the dunes at Kitty Hawk, we were on our way to the moon. Um, all of that innovation, that extraordinary achievement, was motivated by a vision of something really exciting. And I think the notion of a long-term sustainable future for humanity on this planet is equally exciting. It's imperative, but it's also an inspiring goal. And I think unless we bring that inspiring goal into the conversation, unless we focus our energies based on something that, that, that's aspirational, that we will miss the opportunity of, of voluntarily and uh, proactively creating a sustainable human presence on the planet. And we'll just be forced into innovation um, after the fact when we have some kind of catastrophic failure of, of our, of our uh, natural systems on our hands. Well, so give us a you know the, the 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 Cliff Notes version, if you will, of that vision, Brian. Uh, you know what what will life look like in two hundred years uh, to our great grandchildren? You know, if we really can create this sustainable planet that that is both beautiful and abundant. Gosh, you know the the first and I think one of the most interesting aspects of it is that the human population will have to be stable. That's absolutely inevitable. I'm a farmer, as you were pointing out earlier, and I, I, I know that if I put too many animals in a given closed area, that it's going to destroy the, uh, the ecology of that area. And so, you know, the human presence on the planet is undeniably, uh, a quite, has a very profound effect on the ecosystem of the planet. And eventually, we're going to have to stabilize our own numbers. So that's one thing. And, you know, part of my idea is, okay, well, 
if we accept the obvious biological fact that we will have to stabilize the human population at some level, well, we can choose what level that is. I'm not going to prescribe that, but in my own opinion, in my perfect, uh, my, my, my vision of 200 years from now, we'll have fewer people perhaps than we do today. So that there's plenty of wilderness, there's plenty of food, and natural resources are abundant for us because we've voluntarily controlled our numbers at a, at a reasonable level that gives the planet a lot of room and excess, you know, surplus resources to do its own work, to do its own natural work with. Um, you know, beyond that, I think it's going to have to be a planet where uh, global cooperation between people of different countries, uh, people of different cultures, is going to be imperative because the, the, the fundamental issues of environmentalism are global issues. And unless our solutions are fair to all people in all countries, and unless all those people are sort of bought into the planning, bought into the visualization, then we're not going to get the kind of global solutions that will have a meaningful, long-term, positive impact. Well, I don't even want to get into whether you think that's possible or not. I mean, we've been at wars with each other since, you know, one caveman went over to the other one, knocked him on his head, and dragged his woman from the cage to the cave to well, the Well, you other. know, that's absolutely true. But if you, if you read the, the sociology, uh, the, Stephen Pinker is a brilliant writer who recently wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Natures. And in it, he points out that over the last 200 years, we've successively and continuously become less violent, more wealthy, in general, more prosperous uh, across all the nations of the world. We have longer lives. Uh, fewer children die of disease. Fewer people die of violence of any kind. We've, in fact, without perhaps realizing it, been creating our vision of a more civilized human society, a more civilized human global society, as we've gone through the last 200 years. And the numbers are very compelling. We really have made that progress. In our own lifetimes, yours and mine, we've seen human attitudes about discrimination based on ethnicity or race change dramatically in the United States and around the world. And that wasn't a change, I like to point out. That wasn't a change that was forced by some sort of catastrophe. That was a change which we uh, created voluntarily because we thought as a, as, a, as a species that it was the right thing to do. So uh, I actually am very optimistic. I think we can, we can achieve all of those goals in my vision, but we have, to, uh, we have to describe the thing that we're aspiring to, I think. We are speaking with Brian Welsh, who is the author of a provocatively optimistic new book called Beautiful and Abundant. And, and Brian, the, the geopolitical borders aside, uh, isn't business at odds, at least big business at odds with sustainability? Th does profit margin have our planet by the throat? And if so, can we ever hope that it will loosen its grip? Well, consumers will change big business and can do so overnight. When consumers buy into the idea that it's important to do things in an environmentally responsible way and start refusing to do business with companies that don't have that same sense of responsibility, then big industry will change overnight. And I don't look to um, the big multinational corporations to, to begin the change. To Neither do I look to big government to uh, motivate the change. Change always comes from the grassroots. It always comes from individual taxpayers, individual voters, individual consumers. And we're seeing in my business a dramatic increase in the, in the interest among uh, Americans in these issues and a, and, a, and a growing sense of responsibility for the long-term future of a human habitat on this planet. So I see the change coming from consumers, and as you can imagine, as soon as consumers change their buying habits, well, big, even the biggest businesses in the world will, will change their practices overnight. Yeah, I guess it's easy for us to blame, you know, a faceless, nameless corporation, but we re what we really need to do is lead the way. So what can and what should we be doing right now to start affecting this change? You know, get familiar with the places you do business. Get familiar with, the, with, with where your own energy and your own life is going. Now, the first thing I recommend for people is that they engage with sustainability somehow in their own lives. You know, next time you install a light bulb, make sure it's, uh, it's an energy-efficient light bulb. Next time you replace a, a, an appliance of some kind in, your, kind in your home, make sure it uses less electricity or less water than the appliance you're replacing. Maybe start a vegetable garden. Maybe grow some of your own food in some other way. You know, uh, it, 
If you have room, put a few goats or sheep out there or buy some cattle. Make sure you know your farmers and that you're choosing to buy food from people who are doing their job in a responsible, in an environmentally responsible way. And um, furthermore, make sure all the companies you do business with are transparent in their practices and are willing to tell you about how they manufacture things, how they treat people, how they treat the environment, and then make your buying decisions based on those things. And you know, it's not only, uh, it, not, it not only creates change in the world when consumers behave in these new ways, but it's also kind of fun. Mm. It becomes this kind of big project that make, you know, helps me go to bed every night feeling satisfied that I've done something good during the day, and I wake up every morning pretty enthusiastic about doing similar good things the next day. You know, Brian, you, you mentioned how quickly we've gone from one technology, one improvement to, to another. Uh, the, the sun, obviously, an infinite supply of raw energy, possibly free energy for all of mankind. Are we ever going to figure out how to harness it? Are there too many forces that don't want us to? Oh, no, yes, we will, and we are. You know, um, photovoltaics, real simple uh, form of, uh, real simple way of generating electricity with solar power are spreading like wildfire across the globe. I mean, uh, they're not perfect. They're not as efficient as they will be someday, but they're producing a lot of power. Wind power is growing by leaps and bounds. And don't forget geothermal. People forget that we have an, what appears to be a practically uh, infinite source of energy within the planet. We just haven't been figured out how to raise enough money to tap into that. We, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to amortize the cost of something like that over a single career. If we take two careers and plug them together, then we could be tapping into geothermal energy. And that, like the sun, like the wind, is a practically infinite source of energy for human, humanity to go forward for many eons to come. In our last uh, 20 seconds or so, Brian, I want to ask you about your, your magazine, Mother Earth News, a rare exception because it's very popular and very profitable. Are, are things going as well as, as it seems? Yeah, they really are. You know, And part of that, I know, is just that people are more and more excited about the issues of sustainability, and they want to engage in those issues on a personal level. They want to do something good for the planet themselves. Um, and we've always thought that was a lot of fun, and we, and we write about it and talk about it as a source of satisfaction and enjoyment in a person's life. And those ideas seem to be catching on. We've had nice growth in, in, in profitability and revenues and audience many years in a row. And for that, we're, we're very, very grateful. So, folks, if you're looking for a little optimism, check out Mother Earth News or read the book Beautiful and Abundant. Brian Welch, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks so much. A 60s rocker turns 70, and only GB can take you inside his home to celebrate the big 7-0. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. That voice you heard there, of course, legendary rocker Roger McGuinn. Here's something for you. Did you know he just spent his 70th birthday? He was at home quietly with his lovely wife, Camilla. <laughs> yeah, but don't get the idea that Roger is any ordinary 70-year-old, whatever that is. We stopped by to wish Roger well and found him anxious to begin a new decade with a new project. Look in his camera and see what I... How do I look? Look here. How does, she, how does she look on camera? She's perfect. Yeah. She looks great. There, there you go. Roger McGuinn spent his 70th birthday at home with wife Camilla and his newest passion, editing video for a new DVD. It starts off with a little sci-fi thing, and then we got uh, Bruce Springsteen talking, and a little later on we got Tom Petty talking, and... We go into some concert footage here. Camilla, Roger McGuinn at 70. What's that like? 
Are you talking about Roger McGuinn, the guy who puts on his hat, puts on his boots, and walks on stage? Yeah, that, that guy. That or the guy who takes out the garbage. <laughs> well, you know the guy that takes out the garbage. What's it like living with him? Uh, you know what? It's been an adventure, just a total adventure. It's, it's been fun, a lot of fun. He has um, a way of enjoying every day and waking up enjoying the day. But he also is a, a man who cares about knowing God. He cares about knowing me. And he's more sensitive to me than I am. So he can, he can kind of read what I need in that day, as you're, the day goes on. You're a lucky woman. I'm very blessed, yeah. I think about myself as kind of an actor who plays Roger McGuinn sometimes, <laughs> and, you know, and I do take out the garbage, and, and that, that takes about half an hour, and I go, man, I wish we were on the road again. It's like, <laughs> I love the road. You don't have to take out the garbage. Roger and Camilla will soon be back on the road, traveling coast to coast, concert to concert, with a stop in Tucson to celebrate his mother's 102nd birthday. Yeah, I mean, she's 32 years older than I am, and she's still kicking, so uh, it's, it's encouraging. How do you feel at 70, Roger? Do you still feel like Jimmy McGuinn uh, pedaling his bicycle on the streets of Chicago? Yeah, I do. I, I feel probably like 17, 18 in my, in my heart, and uh, I still behave that way a lot of the time. Just a word, if you will, about your relationship with Camilla. I mean, you guys just seem uh, maybe inseparable is too strong a word, but, but, but maybe not. We're together all the time, and um, some people wouldn't like that, but we love it. We, we love being together. We love traveling together, seeing new people, eating new places. We have our favorite taco stands in New Mexico and Arizona when we take Route 66 and uh, the back roads of America, and we just have a ball together. Roger and Camilla now control every aspect of their professional lives, managing Roger's career and writing, producing, and distributing his music. And now, at 70, a new wrinkle, producing a Roger McGuinn DVD. We started shooting uh, footage of concerts, and then we got some friends and people to talk about my life and career. Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Judy Collins, Joan Baez. Uh, the late Pete Fornatel, a DJ from New York, and Dave Barry, best-selling author. And it's something that's a, kind of a labor of love. We're putting it together ourselves on Final Cut Pro, and we're editing some video that you gave us. Thank you very much for shooting the folk dad. The DVD documents Roger's unique contributions to American culture, including some rarely revealed stories. We played for Jane Fonda's birthday party, her 21st birthday party. And Peter Fonda had invited us, and Henry Fonda was there. And he was, he was horrified because these guys who, who used to follow us were dancing around, and they were really freaky looking, and they were dancing up to him. And, and Henry was going, what's going on here? And Derek Taylor, who had, was kind of responsible for the whole party, was asking our manager, Jim Dixon, what, what shall I do? I'm, I'm panic-stricken here. And Jim Dixon said, you don't get it. This is the new Hollywood these people haven't seen anything like this since the 30s. They want this kind of thing, this craziness, this madness. That's why they invited the birds. It's the new Hollywood. From creating folk rock, country rock, psychedelic rock, and more, add ushering in the new Hollywood to Roger's resume, a resume that at 70 is still being written every day. I really think you just have to live each day at a time. And, and I, there was this cartoon a long time ago about this little boy a little girl talking about uh, every day is a new day, and uh, it's it's like a, you know from God, and that's why they call it the present. So just live for the present. One of Roger's biggest presents was the work of now good friend Pete Seeger, who adapted a song from the Bible in 1959 called "Turn, Turn, Turn," a song that never became a hit until 1965, when it caught the attention of Roger McGuinn. I sang it around never expecting it to be well known and this guy I'd never met picked it up and made a hit record out of it. Somebody asked me if I knew Turn 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 and I pulled out my Rickenbacker and started playing. But I didn't play it like Pete. I played it with a beetle beat instead. There is a season turn, 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 turn. 
and the rest is rock history. Happy birthday, Roger. Man, Roger is inspiring in so many ways, but Bill, to me, maybe the most inspiring is that at 70, he's teaching himself to edit videotape and is producing and marketing his own DVD. Mark, it's proof that it is never too late. And of course, he and Camilla, who is also his manager, they continue to travel and tour and perform all over the world. He makes 70 look awesome. Yeah, he really does. How many people do you know who go on diets and just can't lose weight? It happens all the time. And the reason may not be what you eat. It might be what you drink. You won't believe how much of what's in your glass ends up on your hips. What a great topic for a registered dietitian and expert in the field of nutrition. You've seen her on the Today Show, CNN, and the Food Network. Here's Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Before you take a sip of your beverage, find out if you're drinking an extra meal. Calories that can end up, you know, ladies, as a muffin top, bigger belly, or even man boobs. Sweetened beverages of all types are known to pack on the pounds in all the wrong places. Sugar or added sweeteners of some type are added to many beverages, so you drink a load of unwanted calories, resulting in weight gain. Did you know that the 24-ounce Red Lobster traditional Lobsterita has 890 calories? (laughs) That's like 50% of the calories most women need in a day. But if you order the Red Lobster Classic Margarita on the rocks, about five ounces, it's only 250 calories. Big difference. Here's a beverage buster tip. Liquid calories are not satisfying, so it's easy to overeat because you're still hungry. So check the company website for nutrition information, or if your beverage has a nutrition facts label, look to see if the container is one serving or two. Often, it's two servings, but we consume it as one. Boy, that, that is almost shocking because you think of a liquid as just going right through you. You don't think that it's going to you know, go to your hips just like food does. And you haven't even mentioned, oh, I don't even want to bring this <laughs> up, but alcoholic beverages. Because, you know, there are a lot of us out there that every once in a while we have a beer or a glass of wine. Oh, you're right, Bill. And that glass of wine or beer at dinner can easily turn into 800 calories. It's easier than you think to drink 800 calories in alcohol and not even know it. That's like four glasses of wine or three 20-ounce beers. So here's a tip. Have a glass of water between each glass of wine or beer and then set a limit on the number of drinks that you're going to have. If you don't do that ahead of time, it could be all over. It's a good idea to eat something first, too. Remember, beverages do not satisfy hunger. Great advice. I can help you lose that weight and get some energy and stay healthy from Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, an Olympic gold medalist who is growing bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Glad you found us here. You couldn't have picked a better time to join us because our next guest is a former Olympic swimmer. In fact, at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, she won a gold and set a world record in the 4 by 100 meter relay and a bronze in the 100 meter butterfly. Yeah, that free relay, Bill, to this day, one of the greatest races in the history of international swimming. Today, she's a motivational speaker and a whole lot more. She's got a presentation that's called Finding the Champion Within, which she delivers to both corporations and social groups. Let's welcome Wendy Bolio. Hey, Wendy, how are you? 
Good morning here. I am great. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a great program. Well, I appreciate that, and it's our pleasure. And We want to learn more about what you're up to today. But if you'll indulge us, I want to go back to Montreal in 76 because we are coming off an amazing Olympic gold rush by U.S. women, much different than what happened back in 1976. And, of course, there's more than one reason for that. But let's start with the East Germans. The relay gold that you won was the only gold won by U.S. women in Montreal one of only two which the East Germans didn't win. What did you think, Wendy, when you first saw the East Germans? They certainly didn't look like everybody else. Did you suspect or did you know that they were doping and using performance-enhancing drugs? You know, we did suspect, and we suspected the two years prior at World Championships when they literally came out of nowhere, went from never heard of them before to smashing smashing world records. So there's always a suspect, which is which is kind of a shame because it does in some ways take you off of your game of concentration because you spend your entire life training for all other unknowns, but that was never in, certainly never in my head. Gee, how do you beat somebody who's doing drugs? I mean, that was just never part of of our thought process while we were training. So, and, and they were very big women. And hey, I'm a big girl, but uh, <laughs> they were they were clearly something was going on. We just didn't know what. Well, well, thankfully, we can all watch that that race on YouTube, folks. If you haven't seen it, you know, go to YouTube and watch 1976 four by 100 freestyle relay. Just amazing because it's it's really toward the end of the meet. Uh, uh, by then, I, I would think you guys would have given up, but you came together, and the four of you guys just uh, swam a tremendous race. We did put it all together. We saw every single week America's best not taking first, second, or third like we had always done, but fourth, fifth, and seventh places not not making a final. And so the last day came, and you know what? I was not, nor were my teammates, about to leave those games. That was going to be my final Olympic Games without without a gold medal. There's just, it's, there's just no way. And somehow, God, with the grace of God, uh, you know, just we were just lucky on many points as well and we ended up ended up winning that it was just it's one of the greatest uh, moments certainly in my life you bet hey Wendy, i'm just kind of curious as why you had decided that 76 was going to be the end of it because you know we see some older athletes these days the incentive does uh didn't wasn't there then like it is now well what did right. you do when you when you uh decided to give it up well, when I competed, and that's, you know, that's 36 years ago, I was 21, married, still married to the same man, so I had been married for nine months, and 21 was old. The average age of our team was 17 years old. Um, that was just when Title IX was starting and women were getting scholarships. So, you know, women didn't have a place to go in terms of swimming after high school like the men. So it was pretty unheard of for, for me to be competing, and they called me mom all the time. And you're right. Today, fast forward, thank goodness, thanks to Title IX and, and great sponsorship, and our athletes are now all professional athletes. Um, they have the opportunity to continue to train, make a living, and compete in one, two, three, four, five Olympic Games. So you took up competitive track cycling at the age of 40. Loved uh, it. Yeah, you end up winning eight gold medals. Are you still racing on the track? I don't. I had a horrific crash, horrific crash. I almost lost my arm in that crash and uh, decided, you know what? I can do this on a stationary bike. What about <laughs> master swimming? Uh, you never wanted to do that. Never, never wanted to do that. I do stand up paddling. And uh, my husband and I, we race all over, all over the Northwest. I'm in Seattle, so we enjoy, enjoy that. Um, I lift. I'm, I'm competitive. I still swim, obviously, a couple days a week with people that are younger, fitter, faster than uh-huh. me, and that is just enough for me. Well, and obviously, you like competition, but you pr- none of that prepared you for what you would get into next, which was the long-term care insurance field. <laughs> right, when right. You, when you became a national spokeswoman for the Genworth Financial. Tell us about your Finding the Champion Within presentation and kind of your life you know, off of the, uh, the competitive arena. You know, it's all a matter of, uh, of finding a passion for what, for what you love. And certainly when I com- stopped competing in, in swimming, um, clearly I had to find another passion. I had my children. That's all wonderful. That was a great part of it. But there's that competitive person in me that wanted to do something different and something broader. I was fortunate or unfortunate, however, um, however you look at it, and I guess I look at it both ways. But my parents were my coaches until I was 18. And I say unfortunate in that my father had a long-term care 
illness. And I saw what it did to my family. I saw what it did to my mother. I saw what it did to my dad financially, physically, mentally, and thought to myself as a 26-year-old, you know what, someday I'm circling this tree again because I cannot believe who my father, who trained me to the meter of an Olympic gold medal, who planned every workout, everything I ate, everything for 15 years, couldn't figure this out. And that's really what put me into the long-term care industry. I travel throughout the country on behalf of Genworth Financial, talking about being physically strong, financially secure, mentally alert, finding that person within you, because no matter who you are, what your circumstances, you can always be better. You can always take control of the things that are in your grasp and let go of the rest. And that's really the, the premise of, of the education and awareness of what I do out in, in this country and actually all over the world. Boy, we love that kind of conversation, Wendy, because that's what we're all about, the fact that it's never too late to continue to dream never too late to achieve. And you, you in fact, helped start uh, an initiative called Arms of a Women, which is the very first of its kind in your industry, where you recognize the distinctive needs of women clients. How do those needs differ? Well, in today especially, I think it's even more more important because women are balancing their lives in so many ways, and not that men aren't. Um, I mean, it, it, we, we both are. We're both trying to figure it out. But women seem to be the ones who are taking care of the financial situation in their home, certainly when it comes to long-term care, um, taking care of parents, aging parents, their own kids, aunts, uncles, sisters, husbands, and all of that began, becomes quite overwhelming. So In the Arms of Women was really started um, with me um, 10 years ago talking about the needs of women and why it's so important for them to remember that they are a piece of this puzzle, that at the end of the day, women who live longer than men typically, by about, we'll spend about 12 to 20 years um, without a spouse, either through death or, di or divorce. And at the end of our lives, most women are poor. Two-thirds of every American in this country over the age of 80 are women and are poor. And my point is always look. No matter where you are in your life, you can empower yourself to help yourself figure this out financially and physically. The healthier you are, the greater chance you have of needing care. The healthier you are, however, the better chance that you have of not being a burden to your children at all. I mean, I see it with my mother who's 92 years old and is not so much as a burden, but honestly, she's in a nursing home today. I visit her like my seven siblings. Uh, every six weeks, I visit her, and it is difficult, and we pay to the tune of $8,500 a month for her care, and this is month 18. Wow. Wendy, listen, thank you so much for bringing the passion that you do to the, to the airways. Thanks for bringing the energy that you do to these issues that we need to think about. And just thanks for all the memories from the Olympics on up to the work you're doing now. Wendy Bolio, a champion on and off the court. Coming up next, the power of persistence. In her late 80s, she wanted a college degree and nothing would keep her from it. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. And you know, folks, lifelong learning, now more than just a buzzword. Brain health and longevity experts say that keeping mentally engaged is key to quality of life as we age. And you know, that's why so many people are going back to college or even starting college later in life. Well, our next guest achieved a lifelong goal of her own when she graduated last year with a bachelor's degree in paralegal. But what makes this a growing bolder story 
is that she was 87 and had to overcome some extraordinary challenges along the way. Let's get her on the line right now. Welcome, Betty Lopez. How are you, Betty? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? Well, congratulations to you on a great college career. Thank you very much. I'm still not through. Let's get your story. I understand that you retired a while back ago after working like over 20 years as a nurse. What made you want to go back to college and and get your degree when you were in your late 80s? Well, I just thought I maybe I'd like to change positions, what I'm doing now, and uh, do something. I always wanted to do some law, and I thought, well, that, that might be something I would like to do, and at least I could sit down part of the time as a paralegal, you know, if I couldn't stand, you know, for long periods of time. Wow, that that's great. And you, you mentioned just a moment ago that you're still not through. You do have your bachelor's degree, right? Yes, sir, I do have, with honors. Uh, and I am going to go back to school for three days. I'm uh, going to get um, my mediation for mediation for the courts. Wow. Well, good for you. You know, we mentioned in the intro, uh, Betty, that you had a few challenges to overcome. And it wasn't just your age, which can be difficult in and of its own right, but you had to care for your ailing husband. You lost three of your close relatives while you were in college, and you had some pretty serious health challenges yourself. How did you keep going? Why didn't you give up? Well, I don't know. That's just not in my... uh I guess it's just not in my makeup to to give up, you know, because, you know, if you give up, you 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 end up doing nothing, you know, and that's why where I want to continue going till I can't go anymore, you know. What did you have to overcome, Betty? What did you go through? Well, the worst part was the death of my husband, which was really bad. I took care of him nine months before. He had to go in a nursing home just for five months. But uh, other than that, it's you know, I had to do the, I was doing 40 hours a week at, jo- at my job and oh, wow. then taking care of my husband and going to school. And that was a pretty big challenge, you know. And you mentioned that you, you graduated with honors. You had a 3.52 GPA, for goodness sakes. How did it feel to finally get your diploma? Oh, I, I just felt wonderful. I thought, well, at least I've done what I wanted to do, and so I just was looking forward to do something different. You know, I've been manager here now going on 21 years, and it's, you know, I kind of like to do something else, but <laughs> I had a nephew that said, oh, who's going to hire anybody as old as you? And I said, well, as long as I can walk and talk and got good health, you know, why not, you know? And what a great example, Betty. I want to mention to everybody, because we think this is a big deal, that you were honored for your perseverance and success as the winner of the Everest University Dream Award. That yes. that That is, what did something like that mean to you? Oh, it just meant a whole lot, because uh, being picked out of all the other people that probably deserved it as well, you know. But I just felt very honored by getting that award. You know, Betty, help me understand a little bit about your employment situation because you said you've been working here for many, many years. So you do have a job now. Are you are you yet using your degree in paralegal, or does that just help you do no, better? No, that will come after January. I got gotcha. you. Because I, I want to do the mediation part, you know, and you have to be uh, – have a bachelor's degree in paralegal before you can do that. Wow. And, and folks, do you hear this? This is Betty Lopez, who got a bachelor's degree at 87 because she wanted to do something more. She wanted to do something new. It's not that she had to. She wanted to. She There, there was more out there to do, even at the age of 87. You know, Betty, what is your message to other people? What do you think we should learn from what you've accomplished? Well, I, I think that people should not think Age as uh, stopping to doing anything. I think age, uh, if you've got the ability, you, you should do it. Uh, age is just a number to me, you know. And uh, I think that people, if they got the health and their mind is good, they should go forward with what they want to do. What did you think, Betty, that the other students thought of you? What message did you send to them? Oh, huh. they all said that I was an inspiration to them, you know, that, you never get too too old to go to to college because some of them were 30 and they thought they were too old. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, you just 
still young, according to myself. <laughs> and uh, they all thought that I was an inspiration to them. You know, Betty, we hear many times from people your age who, who go back to college that, that it's not just, you know, what they learn from, from, from the studies there, but, but that the social uh, impact, the social benefits of going back to school are equally important. Did you enjoy it? Was it fun hanging out with younger people and making well, yes, new friends? Yes, it was. Uh, they, were, they were also very kind, and I don't know, they just uh, respected me and... Uh, and of course, I was kind back to all of them, also. And uh, but they all—they uh, just—I don't know—they just were all good. And the teachers were so kind and good too. And they didn't—they uh, didn't let let me go off the hook, you know, to do, baby me or anything. Mm-hmm. I had to have my lessons and things done just like anyone else. And I wouldn't have expected anything less, you know. Have you always been a role model? Have you always considered yourself a leader, or is this just something? Yes, I have been ever since uh, I was young. I've always been over a group of people, uh, uh, this and that, all the way down through my life. Well, you know, you know, it feels good. So many people say that when you get to your 80s and beyond that there's really not much left to do, that you can't have a real impact in society. And you are proving that that's not true. And, you know, we, we all owe you a debt of gratitude for really showing us what's possible when we get to be your age. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. At least I, I'm good health yet, and I got a good mind, and, you know, and I mix well with people. Well, Betty, let me echo what Mark says. We, we, we both think you're a great inspiration. Thank you for your message, and thank you for your willingness to share your story. And wouldn't it be neat, Mark, if one of those TV commercials where the lawyer comes on, we go, hey, I'm Betty Lopez, and if you need a lawyer or a paralegal help, give me a call. She'd be fantastic because, you know, she really gets life. She, she mixes well with people. Coming up, four down and five across. We'll explain next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and our next guest has been deemed the best Sunday crossword puzzle creator in the entire world. And you know what, folks? That is something, because his syndicated crossword has been described as having kind of a far side sense of humor, and you can find it every Sunday in the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and guess how many other papers, Mark? At least 50. You read my intro, didn't you? You are exactly right. Anyway, we're talking about a big-time guy with a big-time brain. So let's welcome Merle Regal. How are you doing, Merle? I'm doing great. How about you guys? Boy, isn't the crossword puzzle guy somebody that people either just love and want to meet or want to strangle because they can never solve his puzzles? Yes. <laughs> Which yes, do you get more? Much it. It's a... A love-hate relationship, yeah, that goes way back, absolutely. Uh, speaking about going way back, uh, talk about finding your calling early in life. Is it true that you made your first crossword puzzle at age six and you sold your first crossword to the New York Times at 16? That is true. That is true. I mean, I, I kind of now wish I had to picked up an electric guitar. <laughs> crossword puzzles will do. I mean, that, it was actually my, more my, uh, my nature to do that to pick up a crossword and, and to go up into my room and solve puzzles and work, make puzzles. Um, later on in life when I was asked, you know, your puzzles just have a lot of gags in them. Why didn't you just be like a, a gag writer? Or a, It's because the pressure that goes along with all that. Being a crossword puzzle guy from such a young age, I got used to the kind of being the nerdy guy who was like could go up away from everything and, and make puzzles and solve puzzles away from all the pressure 
of doing jokes or stand up or something like that. So, yeah. So the fact that I started out at six was that's true. Uh, all my early heroes were all comedians. When George Carlin would say language things like, when people say uh, I'm going to get on a plane. George Carlin would say, well, okay, you get on the plane, I'll get in the plane, let's see which one of us gets there. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, so that's, a, that's a language thing, you know, so uh, about listening to language from an early age was my deal. I mean, you know, when people say they're head over heels in love, for example, aren't you guys head over heels right now? Yeah. I'm head over heels, but you would think heels over head <laughs> would be the expression. <laughs> crazy flipping, crazy yeah. in love. But no, it's head over heels in love. I don't understand it, but the language to me even from age six, was this massive playground with all this interesting stuff going on. So I just naturally fell into it, and I've never fallen out of it. We're talking with crossword king Merle Shecky Regal. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, Merle, you've got one of those jobs where, you know, there's not a college career counselor anywhere that would recommend someone go into crossword puzzle creation. No, that's true. In fact, I, when I was in my 20s, I thought I would, n- I would never want to look back on my life if I were 70 um, and saying all I did was make crossword puzzles uh, until in the in when I moved to L.A. and I had a, a producer friend who was right about my girlfriend. He said, you know, she really likes you. You should go with her, and I'm still with her today. So he was right about that. Hmm. He also said, um, you know, in Hollywood, there's a million guys trying to write scripts. There's, every busboy has a script in his back pocket, music, TV. Everybody wants to do that, but nobody makes crossword puzzles like you do. So that's what you should figure out. A career based on. And I said, well, maybe you're right. So uh, Marie and I got together and thought, well, to b- do this right, we should be in newspapers because more people solve puzzles in newspapers than they actually buy books and magazines. Hmm. And also, if we were in newspapers, we would have our own syndicate, and I would send the puzzle out after I was the last person who saw it, so the gags would be intact. Very often, when you send puzzles freelance to magazines and newspapers, an editor if he doesn't have the same sense of humor that you do, we'll edit some of the humor out. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that I thought the gags would get in as I wrote them, and so to do it in newspapers. And so one by one, we started adding newspapers in the early, in the 90s, to the point where first we had um, uh, the San Francisco Examiner, which became the Chronicle, and then the Philadelphia Inquirer. One by one, we kept adding puzzles because we were cracking up the editors with the gags and the puzzles. (laughs) And most editors had never... Uh, you know, hadn't heard much about crosswords that were funny. And so one by one, we started adding them until the point where we just, we had enough where we could actually make a living off them. Wow. So so you actually got some good career advice early on from a a Hollywood friend of all people, and you were smart enough to take it. Uh, And your crosswords have become so popular in our culture to, to the point that you yourself have played yourself on an episode of The Simpsons in which Lisa becomes hooked on puzzles, and you've appeared on Oprah. Are you surprised, Merle, by the celebrity that you've achieved through crossword puzzles? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things when once I decided, okay, crossword puzzles is it, not music, not other things. Once we thought, okay, this is the thing that I was born to do. So rather than tap, tap dance around it, let's just do it. And by doing the thing that I love to do the most, uh, this has led to all of the amazing events that have occurred after that. I mean, I never would have thought that making crossword puzzles for a living was going to lead to being in a documentary about crossword puzzles. That was going to lead to being on Oprah. That was going to lead to being on The Simpsons. Um, It's just an amazing thing. What's great about The Simpsons is that most of the writers there are kind of puzzle people anyway. So that, you know, if you ever watch The Simpsons, just the names of the stores in the episodes show how much word game savvy they have. You know, I remember there was an episode where Homer joins the NRA and goes into a gun store called Bloodbath and Beyond. <laughs> you know, so I just thought, you know, okay, these, these are my people. <laughs> now, I've been an animation fan since I was a kid, too. I, I, I can quote Warner Brothers cartoons chapter and verse. To actually be in a cartoon is like a dream come true, another dream come true. So it's just been an amazing ride. Even being on Oprah was just astounding. So, um, you know, I I say that the only reason this has happened is because we decided not to take the normal path of just being a freelancer sending in puzzles, but to start our own syndicate, make the puzzles uh, in their final form, send in the newspapers, and then then when the... Uh, when the, about eight years later, we put the same puzzles in book form. So we own every, we don't own all the puzzles. We own all the copyrights. And if there's a gag 
uh, that gets in, it's because I wrote the gag, not because somebody changed it. And the other side of this, Merle, in the in the last minute we have here, is that brain games have been discovered to be very important for all of us in, in staying sharp and, and aging in a better way. So you're instead not just making people laugh, you're helping people live longer and live better. Well, that's what they say. I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. They say that, you know, just like the body needs exercise, the brain does too. Uh, I've always said the crosswords are like a thigh master for your mind because uh, regular workouts will do it. I mean, it, it actually, the more, the more that you work your brain out, I think what I've read is that it actually grows dendrites. And the more dendrites you have, that's more to, for, more to fall back on when you get older. Is that a seven-letter word, vertical, uh, <laughs> dendrite? That's eight letters, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> That's right, eight letters. All right, Merle, we're going to have to leave it there. Merle Regal, folks, a man of many talents and interests. You can find out more on his website, sundaycrosswords.com. Well, we hope we've entertained you over the past hour, but even more than that, we hope we've helped motivate you to dream big, to aspire for more. And we're not talking about more in the material sense, Bill, more of what actually makes you happy. And many times that's actually less material stuff. Whatever you dream of, whatever you desire, find a way to make it at least a small part of your daily life. And, of course, we're here to help, not only here on Growing Boulder Radio, but also on Growing Boulder TV, growingboulder.com, and now in Growing Boulder Magazine. Check it out, the new Growing Boulder Magazine. We think you're going to like it. And if you haven't already, find us and like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where we'll keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. Until then, we'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Crew.